when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. So that happened to sponsor by Casper, who urged you to forget the mattress showrooms and go online to get an obsessively engineered mattress at an outstanding price. Go to www.casper.com happened and get started on your risk-free trial of a great mattress today. This podcast contains explicit language. I like this picture of baby deer and fluffy bunny caught frolicking in my Facebook feed. I wish I could frolic. Hello, I'm Jason Lincolns. Most of so that happened. Okay, you ready? So that happened. This week, we learned about the high-value detainee interrogation group, an interagency outfit that was set up to bring the nation's most elite interrogators to bear on high-priority terror suspects. But what we've learned calls into question whether this group really is all that elite. We'll give you the lowdown on this HuffPost investigation. Meanwhile, a group of football players from Northwestern University snapped the ball to the National Labor Relations Board, hoping that the NLRB would run a play that would get America's student-athletes closer to obtaining some real labor rights. Unfortunately, the NLRB chose to punt in the red zone. Former NFL wide receiver Dante Stallworth joins us to discuss what happens next. And that's not all, folks. We've got news you can use about the pet food industry and how hard it is these days to find safe food for Fido. Plus, we take a dip in the 2016 race, ponder Barca Rubio's passing ability, and as much as it pains me to say it, we have news about Donald Trump. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Paige Lavender, Travis Waldron, and Allie Watkins. And here's what happened first. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to So That Happened. It's a podcast about junk and stuff. I'm Jason Lincolns, editor of Eat the Press at The Huffington Post. And joining me always are my friends. One friend is Mr. Zach Carter, senior political economy for The Huffington Post. And also joining us today is... Allie Watkins, intelligence reporter for The Huffington Post. That's right. I feel like that job title is a little bit unfair. I know. I don't really like it. It freaks me out because I like I'm not there can be intelligence reporters who are not necessarily intelligent. But it suggests that you are. And I kind of like what what do I got out of senior political economy? It just makes me sound like, you know, I'm barely above staff writer at this place. So (laughs) but we missed you, dude. You've been gone for two weeks. I have. And I know that I know that great lengths were taken during the two weeks I was gone to make it appear that I was still here. (laughs) 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 Like it was it was like actually kind of kind of absurd. You don't need to worry about the debate, dude. We got it covered. Of course we don't. I, I I'm of the opinion. I'm of see. Okay. Like. Right now, we're at the nonsense time in American politics as far as the presidential election goes. 2016, we're in August 2015. And 
it's a period of time I think all of us we're political reporters we tend to like deep we're, we're into this stuff every day we read this stuff every day we tweet about it we write about it we're we're constantly hyper aware of what's going on in 2016 and I think that we tend to think well not all of us but I think a lot of us tend to think that the American people must be as invested in politics mm-hmm. as much as we are but in August 2015 I don't think the American people give a shit and I think that like when I went across the fucking ocean and stopped reading the news <laughs> and only started caring about tapas and wine. <laughs> and ancient things. I actually I saw obta- the photo. And ancient things. I think I actually obtained the state of awareness that most normal Americans have about presidential politics right now, which is that they're sort of aware that there's like, you know, a race happening and that like, oh, there's a debate. Oh, Donald Trump's a candidate. That's that's neat. Uh, we'll see how it's. We'll see what happens in January. So you it, felt like a real person. I felt like it's funny. It took. I had to go to Spain to start to feel like a real person again. How about that? Wow. Very poetic. If you were running for office, people would say that you had just apologized for America and you would be fucked. I. That's why I don't <laughs> run for office <laughs> because because I actually because politicians really do run away from anything that makes them fucked, quote unquote. <laughs> Whereas, whereas I, whereas I sprint in that direction. (laughs) Yeah, I I I think I did that in college a lot. I'm the sort of person that I'm the sort of person who's like, if I do this, will like more people think I'm an asshole? Okay, sign me up. I'll do it. Yeah, um, that's kind of Donald Trump's like, strategy, uh, I think. As little as I think the American public is paying attention to the uh, to the presidential race, they have been paying much less attention to this kind of weird. It's not an agency; it's like an amalgam of different intelligence groups that that Ali just reported on. So tell us about the terrible shit that's happening with this, what was supposed to be a special interrogation team. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the the biggest questions here is that, you know, we don't necessarily know if terrible shit's happening. A lot of the story is just we don't know what's happening with this group. Um, So it's, long story short, it's this special interrogation group. Obama stands it up in 2009 as the smoldering ruins of the CIA torture program and the U.S. reputation (laughs) is burning around him and says, hey, we're going to do this thing where we no longer let the CIA just do whatever the hell it wants. We're going to do an interagency group that's led by the FBI that is basically the best interrogators from all these different intelligence agencies. You get rotated into this high-value detainee interrogation group called the HIG. And whenever we capture somebody, we're going to be like, okay, go team. And we get like a group of like really qualified people together and send them out interrogate people for intelligence and it's going to be great and so they're supposed to be like the avengers only the essentially yeah there's probably like some superhero uniforms right. i'm sure capes are involved but they're the whole premise of this <laughs> was kind of you know it was twofold you know part of it was we need a group that's dedicated to actually following the law and being humans um and also no more rectal feeding yeah like let's kind of try to get away from that and then also this concept of Um, a clean break. So you need like a clean team to interrogate people. So it's just for intelligence gathering purposes. You don't have people like doing these kinds of weird interrogations and then feeding information to prosecutors. It's basically the Hague was intended to come in and strictly interrogate for 
intelligence purposes. Okay. You know, Miranda, the Miranda warning isn't a part of this. It's not a part of the prosecution. Um, so they come in and gather intelligence and then, you know, lock off any communication between lawyers or whoever's handling this. They go do their intelligence thing and then the judicial process happens. Okay. So it's intended to be this kind of like fresh page every time we catch someone, send these experts in, we get great stuff out of it. You know, well off, and they've done work work that we've heard of before. I mean, yeah, they, they were the they were the team that interrogated some of the uh, high value targets that we've read about in newspapers. Yeah, uh, the Times Square bomber, right. um, the Boston bomber. They were just dispatched to interrogate the ISIS wife, uh, uh, Um Sayef, who was the wife of the ISIS target who was killed in a drone strike. Um, so they have been dispatched and they have been sent out to interrogate people. Um, but there's a lot of concerns that have arisen in the last six years since this thing was started. Um, and you know that they can't have their shit together because the acronym is HIG, HIG, and yet it's the High Value Detainee Interrogation Group. Yeah, I clearly it's Yeah, for a town that is so like that prides itself on acronyms, they really fucked this one up. That's just yeah, an embarrassment. So anyway, uh, <laughs> how else have they? What, what are the what are the real problems? So I mean, there's a lot of questions around the HIG. Um, I mean, one a couple of the instances that we put forth in the story is. Um, um, you know, in the six years since it was started, there's a lot of sources who say that the best interrogators aren't actually rotated into this thing. Um, that, you know, for example, if the Defense Intelligence Agency has like three top of the line interrogators, why would they send them to the HIG? We're just going to keep them with DIA and DIA will get a chance to interrogate. These so so who, is, who is part of, of, of the HIG? If so it, a if part of the, the HIG. CIA. Yeah. So the HIG does involve the CIA. It's FBI led and CIA and the Pentagon, which is usually the Defense Intelligence um, Agency, all like feed people into the HIG. Um, it's it's led by an FBI director, and then there's two deputy directors, a CIA guy and a Pentagon, usually DIA guy, and then interrogators, linguists, analysts, they're all kind of rotated in from government agencies to serve on the HIG for either part-time or full-time terms. And one guy who just shoots arrows at things for some reason. Just for the hell of it. He's, yeah. like, in the back just, like, throwing a dartboard <laughs> at, like, an old picture of Osama bin Laden just to see. There's, he's, like, in a separate office. Right. Yeah. So, so, the, 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 so one, one concern is that people at the CIA say, well, you know, we want to keep our good interrogators at the CIA, but we'll give you, you know, the B-teamers. They can go off and be. Yeah, essentially. And that, I mean, it doesn't just complicate the agency process. It complicates the oversight process, too, because, you know, the intelligence committees say, no, 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 we have primary jurisdiction over this thing because we handle the budget. And yet the Judiciary and Armed Services Committees are like, no, 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 we had to look at this thing sometimes, too, because, like, we're involved. It's the, like, it's, it's the definition of a Washington pissing contest making, like, these operations difficult. Okay, well, let's look at it this way. So not everyone could play on the Golden State Warriors, right? So let's say the the CIA has their Golden State Warriors interrogation team. Like, the HIG can still be, you know, the Indiana Pacers, right? Pretty good. (laughs) It can still be pretty good. So is there a deficiency beyond just simply we're not getting the best? Are they getting just, like, complete dregs? Well, that's part of the question here is that as far as the HIG is set up, The only formal interrogation training that you have to go through once you are assigned to the HIG is a week-long course. Well, I could do a week-long course. You could do this course. Well, wait, but you you pointed out in your article, Ali, um, that there seems to be, I mean, the thing that I'm most interested in when we talk about replacing the CIA torture program is making sure the United States isn't torturing people anymore, Mm because that seemed to be a problem. Yes. Um, But then in your article, you say that there are two different sort of legal standards Mm -hmm. by which or legal guides by which the interrogators can abide. And one of them is a lot more flexible than another. 
Yeah, I, and that that I think is one of the bigger parts of the story that we wrote today is that you have all these resources being put into this training manual, you know, that focuses on non-coercive techniques, rapport building. I mean, it's very, it makes a lot of sense when you when you kind of talk to people about it that it's all about cultural building and rapport building and getting to know someone to get them to talk to you, which is you know, any professional interrogator will tell you is the right way to do it. So you have the Hig teaching this week-long training course that you should interrogate this way. But then the the reality is nobody is bound to that manual, and they can follow the Army Field Manual or, or any other approved interrogation tactic. Um, and the problem that you run into, you know, as far as the Army Field Manual, there's been a lot of professional interrogators who have sounded the alarm over that. You know, it allows for sleep deprivation. It allows for solitary confinement. It, it, I mean, when you read through it, it's, it's very carefully parsed um, that you can scare people, you can humiliate people, but you have to very carefully toe a line. It's basically saying you can scare someone, but, like, don't freak them out too much. And you can make someone embarrassed, <laughs> but don't humiliate them. Jason, Screams, look, at, look them. at this photo. Yeah. Look yeah. at this photo. We don't want to piss off the UN. We're not going to show it to so. your mom, but but you look at it. <laughs> pretty you bad. know what's in here. Yeah. So the question is that you have this kind of... I did 9-11. <laughs> that worked. This boring ideology of, like, you have these non-coercive rapport-building techniques that you're asking these people to follow, but the reality is they have so much more latitude than that. And, and one of the problems that we found with talking to sources is that you have this training that happens, but a lot of the people who are assigned to the HIG in, in typical intelligence community American cowboy fashion don't necessarily think they need to be told how to interrogate. And, and a lot of people who we talk to who have had experience with these rapport building techniques who have been involved in HIG training and involved with the group said that one of their biggest struggles has been even finding out if the interrogators are using these non-rapport building techniques. You know, are they just sitting through this week-long course and then saying, screw you, we're going to keep someone awake for 20 hours. Right. There's a guy in your piece who you mentioned, like, just sort of, I had a gut feeling about Yeah. It turns out he had never interrogated anyone before. He was an infantryman before he joined DIA. And so he went through this course, and one of the trainers asked him, you know, how do you know that guy's lying? I mean, it's a very, when you talk to people about this course, it's a very clear structure of, like, this is what you ask someone to find out with their lying. You know, you don't tell if someone looks to the left and breathes weird. You know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's, like, so 24 Jack Bauer. (laughs) And so, you know, these trainers were asking this guy, how do you know he's lying? And he says, well, I just knew it in my gut. And the trainers were like, this is the problem. Like, this is, you know, there's a way to explain it. But, and it, but at least people aren't being chained to the ceiling wearing a diaper forced to, like, piss on themselves. But that's, yeah, and we want to seems... be very clear. Like, I, and that was a str- kind of a struggle with the story is that we don't want to suggest they're ripping people's fingernails off. Like, we that there's been no one who if, suggested if that's happening. If this agency isn't effective, the, the, if this agency isn't effective, doesn't that give some sort of political backstop to people who want to bring back torture. Exactly. And, and you have this question of, was it even worth it? You know, if we if we still have not been able to master a way to make these non-coercive rapport-building techniques relevant and to even make the intelligence community see them as relevant, then what kind of staying power do these reforms have? And, and there are Republicans on the oversight committees, right, who yeah. are openly in favor of... Of torture, who see no value in the HIG, who see no value in rapport-building techniques or anything like that. One last question, because we've got to wrap up, but I wanted to ask, in previous Allie Watkins reporting, 
the Federal Bureau of Investigation has been a shining star compared to some other intelligence agencies. How were they when it came to reporting this story? Amazingly, after I started making calls for this story, I was told, well, we can't help you out right now because the HIG has decided that in the next few weeks, we're going to put out a public document and be super transparent because we decided this is a good idea. And I have a couple questions with that. But the biggest one is, why are we now just deciding being semi-transparent about interrogation is a good idea? Like, there was kind of a problem with this about six years ago. I don't know why this is a new advent that, like, hey, we should. And I mean, the stupid part is that it was benign questions like, hey, who appoints your director? What is the criteria to get put into the HIG? <laughs> Where does your budget come from? And they were just like, I don't know, it's probably classified. The HIG, it's somewhere doing something probably well, but maybe not. All right, thank you. Allie Watkins, you can follow her on Twitter at A-L-I-W-A-T-K-I-N-S. Hey, everybody. Are you in the market for a new mattress? Well, you could spend all day at a mattress store testing good mattresses and testing bad mattresses and probably paying a fair amount for that privilege. Or you can go to Casper.com right now and buy one obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Casper mattresses have just the right sink and just the right bounce because they bring two technologies, latex foam and memory foam together for better days and brighter nights. And the best thing is that you can try a Casper for 100 days right now for free delivery, and if you're not excited about it, painless returns. These mattresses were made in America, and they're $500 for a twin, $950 for a king-size mattress. Go right now to casper.com slash happened and get started on your risk-free trial on a great mattress today. Hey, we're back, and we're back with Zach Carter. Hello. May or may, or may not have just been here. I'm always, I'm always with you. <laughs> I'm always with you, Jason. <laughs> I like how I just like completely just bollocks that. <laughs> and joining us also is our good friend and former NFL wide receiver and Tom Brady's personal friend. Friend Dante to animals. <laughs> hey, man. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate hey, it. Glad Appreciate to have it. you here. Glad we, to be on. So we, we, we got you here for, for, for a number of reasons. But the first thing we want to talk about is uh, and the 2016 race this week. This is really, the most important news. Really important event happened. <laughs> And it is, yes. uh, and uh, probably a lot of you out there listening have at least seen the the gif or the video. But Marco Rubio uh, threw a pass to a young kid, and uh, yeah, I saw it. Kid hit a, hit the kid in the face or the head. Wiped him out. I mean, did I mean it was it was a disaster as as plays go. Yeah, get hit in the face and fall down. I mean, that it, ever happened to you on the field, Dante? Get hit in the face and fall down? Uh, I can't confirm or deny that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting in some calls to the Cleveland I mean, Browns. <laughs> it, did, it did kind of remind me of the very famous like Sanchez de Tebow play oh my, oh. That, that happened uh, oh. what two seasons ago. But let the, yep. you know, I wanted to like just sort of break down Rubio's technique, you know, as a quarterback. I mean, what did you think about what was he doing right or wrong? What, how how were his mechanics? His mechanics were not very good. Okay, and as you <laughs> tweeted, as you tweeted, you know, he had a he had an open pocket. He had a free pocket. That's right. Yeah. So not a whole lot of pressure. Not not really. And then you know he's he's got a wide open guy too. And typically for quarterbacks and wide receivers, those throws and catches are usually the hardest when a guy's wide open because it's like I want to hit him in stride. I don't want to mess this up. He's wide open. And then for the receiver, it's like. Oh my God, I'm wide open, but the ball is taking 20 light years to get here. And there's no one here, so it's only me and the ball. Don't drop it. Don't drop it. And I think that's what happened to both of them. But Rubio, Rubio threw a, uh, 
I want to say it was a catchable ball, but I mean, it, it came out kind of like a like a kickoff. I yeah, mean, it was a little wobbly. It was there was no, it was a lot of wobbly. It was, it was a lot of wobbly. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing I've never said. I know that you're supposed to throw a nice tight spiral. Why? Why does that? Why? Why does that matter? It makes it a lot easier because it's when the ball's coming at you nice and tight. It's a, it's a tight spiral, and you're able to you're able to catch it a lot easier. That's what. That's what coaches, quarterback coaches, tell their quarterbacks to make throw a catchable ball. Mm-hmm. But as a wide receiver, you are trained in your mind to catch the ball regardless. Peyton Manning has been doing this since college, and he does not throw spirals at all. Hmm. I mean, if you look at a lot of Peyton Manning's highlights, they are they are quack quacks coming at you. Yeah, goofy, but real goofy yeah, balls. But I mean, you know, they get there on time. They hit you in stride. They're catchable. And he's extremely accurate, and they're catchable. Yeah. Because they come at you, you know, nice. It's like a they come at you like a loaf of bread. Rubio, he tried to lead him. He didn't lead him. It was a very hard catch because it was over the kid's head, and then the kid fell down. And uh, I, I hope. I mean, I, mean, I, I hope that's like... not his uh, foreign policy <laughs> to you know to 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 hurt our allies. Leading like that. from come behind, on, Marco Rubio. <laughs> and and the thing is, he you know he he really did kind of underthrow the kid too, and he threw mm-hmm. it he threw it behind him. Yeah. So the kid had to reach up, like which is a very difficult catch. I mean, it's you know those because those are the ones you don't when it's coming at you, you have to gauge it in the air, and you have to either if you're going to turn up uh, open with an open chest or you're going to catch it over your shoulder. That, and those are difficult. Those are extremely difficult. So. I really can't blame the kid as much as I'd, I'd blame Marco. He, mm. If Marco would have threw it in front of him and maybe led him inside a little bit, but then you have the safety there. But right. then again, he was wide open. I just have one last question I got to ask. Okay, when you're the receiver in that situation, you go out for a pass and quarterback kind of puts it in a bad place. Right. What do you say to the guy when you get back to the huddle? Are you like, come on now, man? Uh, well, if it's, Is there any it's kind Brady, of... you don't say anything. You just get back in the huddle and, and you just go to the, <laughs> <laughs> and you just go to the next play. All right, all right, good <laughs> enough, if, good you know, enough. It's, if it's a, a younger guy, then you just kind of look at him like, you know, hey, <laughs> let's go, let's go. I, I was, ne- I never mess with my quarterback, so I understood, I understand the. You know the pressures that they have. So I, I was never that guy. But there are other receivers who don't care, and if they're open, they expect the ball. I was never like that. Yeah. <laughs> All <laughs> right, man. Wah. And it sounds to me like Marco and the kid need to just like work out some of the they, kinks. They need to work out some of the kinks. You know, he, he needs to lift some of the sanctions off the kid, and <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, it's just like you can't you can't do that to your allies, man. You can't do that to your allies. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> Awesome. All right. (laughs) Dante, thanks for breaking that down for us. (laughs) And we're back once again. We continue on with Dante Stallworth. Yeah, he's here. And uh, joining us now, making his So That Happened debut, is our good friend, Travis Waldron. Finally. Finally on. Finally on. Travis. Travis. (laughs) What's up, brother? I'm good. How are you, man? Good, good. Good Good. to see you. You too. Travis comes to us. uh, You've been here. How long have you been here now? Like a couple months. Almost three months. Three months. Yeah. Yeah. Travis is. Time flies. If you're following Travis on our page, he covers the intersection of politics and sports, and we're going to get into that a little bit today. Uh, Also, Travis, big Arsenal fan, so that. Unfortunately. Unfortunately (laughs) unfortunately for all of us. Winger out. But okay, so um, so we're talking this week about uh, the latest in what's been going on with the uh, uh, college football union drive, um, something that took on a lot of currency 
last year, uh, I think more and more people are becoming aware of the fact that there's major discrepancies in the sort of way uh, the life of a student athlete is kind of popularly depicted and the way it is. There's, I think, I think a lot of people were a bit shocked uh, when uh, the, the, the Connecticut basketball players talked about going to bed hungry. This is true. Um, I've been there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've been there. Uh, Colton Kane, the Kane kid, Coulter. Okay, sorry, sorry, the two different dudes. <laughs> two different dudes. Kane Coulter. Sorry, my apologies to Colton Kane. Uh, Kane Coulter, who was kind of beaten to the face of Northwestern and the and the, the, the college players' attempt to unionize, uh, has been through a lot. Um, there was a Deadspin article this week that described how much he's been through. Uh, he started taking shit from people just when he started pointing out how hard they worked and how many hours they were. Mm-hmm. Um, but the big news, I'm sure, let's let's Travis break down big news this week from the National Labor Relations Board. Right. So they ruled base. They basically punted to steal a football metaphor. Um, oh, that's good. They, and they <laughs> they they said they were going to decline to use their jurisdiction. To allow players to unionize, which uh, was a is, a is a pretty big defeat for the players. It, it's you know, long story short, is probably the end of the road for that particular avenue for for changing the landscape of college sports and how student athletes uh, are treated. And you know, it, it was kind of shocking. I thought that the the NLRB decided, you know, we could rule on this, and we're just not going to. <laughs> um, it was you know, there there are people who've said it's kind of a cop out. Uh, and, that's certainly one way to read it. And, and you know, I think it, it, it would have been a big-time political decision for them to rule either way. Um, they, would have, they would have caught flack from one side or the other. So they didn't defaulted. So they just said, you know, here's default of the status quo, right. exactly. And, right. you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate because it, it would have been some sort of resolution uh, to this, maybe not a resolution, but it would have been some step forward for student athletes to to have these rights. And well, so, sorry, Chad. Well, that's the thing is like they they ruled and said, but this decision quote does not preclude reconsideration of this issue in the future. Uh, it pretty much does because now you right. said precedent. I was going to ask, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really? It's, it's, it's basically really? saying you're going to have to have one hell of a case, yeah. to come back to us. Right. Yeah, it, it, that's a good point. You know, they a lot of people pointed to that as. Well, yeah, the door's still open. Not really. <laughs> right. I, you know, the labor experts that Dave Jamison and I talked to were basically like, "No, this is it." Wow. Um, wow. The you know that they would have to have such a market change in the case uh, to take it back to the NLRB and get a ruling. What and was that compelling also, about the case they brought to the NR, uh, uh, National Labor Relations Board? I actually have an easier time saying it out loud than I do <laughs> saying the acronym. <laughs> so NLRB. Okay. What what was it? What was not compelling about their case? Well, they didn't really say there was anything not compelling about it. But that's, what, that's the striking thing is they they didn't they didn't really take a stance on the question the central question which is are college athletes employees of their universities? Um, the right. regional director in Chicago last year ruled that they were that northwestern right. student northwestern athletes qualified as employees. I think. In my view, if you look at what college athletes are, and I don't think you have to be necessarily an expert on this. If you are, if you've gone to college, if you've gone to a major university, and you've looked at what athletes do, they look an awful lot like employees. Kind of. <laughs> they get, right. you know, they, they there's a there's a contractual agreement, yeah, between them and their school, which is their scholarship. 
Right. They're controlled by their program. They have to live up to certain standards or else they can lose that scholarship. That's a, that looks a lot like work. Take us inside what it's like to just be a student athlete and, and in a major sport, like a big money-making sport. We'll have these 6 o'clock a.m. workouts, 6 a.m. workouts um, during the spring, during the summer. And so our, our day pretty much starts at like 6 a.m. On, on those days, which are a lot of days throughout the season. Or, I'm sorry, in the off-season. Right. Um, we're still taking at least uh, 12 to, to 16, 18 hours each semester. Um, and they give us these, now it's, I, I was in, I was when the dinosaurs were roaming the earth, that's when I was back in college <laughs> and I'm sure not much has changed since obviously the kid from UConn, um, after they won the national championship, he talked about how he goes to bed hungry. Well, I know when I was at, when I was in school, we didn't, there were, there were certain meals we didn't even have, but yet you are demanding us to be up at six in the morning and then still take 12 to 15 or 12 to 18 hours of classwork, um, that is essentially a job. But so it, at the very least, feed the kids. Right, I mean, right. make sure that you give them, and I'm not talking about, you know, the prime stakes and all that, but, but I mean, if you're going to ask them to go out and perform in their respective sport, then you have to, you have to give them the proper nourishment that they need. That's, and to me, that's the, that's the NCAA. Like, how is that even an issue? The food is an interesting point here. Food is kind of how this whole thing started. Ramogi Huma, right. who is the, the guy behind the National Collegiate Players Association, which then became the College Athletes Players Association. That was the union that would have been there for the Northwestern players. He started his activism on this issue because one of his teammates at UCLA got in trouble for getting a bag of groceries right. from someone. Right. That was an it's impermissible right. benefit. Right. Uh, you go to the point at UConn, Shabazz Napier uh, said he goes to bed hungry. The, that that caused the NCAA to change right. their food exactly. policy. They, they, they relaxed their meals. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection. Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. But it's sad that, Travis, it it's, is. it's sad it's that very it sad. that. You know what so, I'm saying? Right, and so you're talking it's about crazy. being inside of it, and I saw it from a, a different view when mm-hmm. I was at the University of Kentucky and I was right. working for the student paper. We won't talk about that. Uh, this is the year. <laughs> Probably not. Um, but when I was there, I was doing a story on an offensive lineman. And he invited me over to his apartment to do the interview. And he lived with one of the defensive linemen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he got up in the middle of the interview to cook dinner. And they had like 10 chicken breasts. And I was like, oh, are y'all having people over? He's like, no, <laughs> right. This is for us, right, right. Like the the amount of food it yep. takes to feed 
a college football player, a college athlete, when they're burning, you know, there was a story last week of J.J. Watt, 9,000 calories a day. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. You know, like these guys are on, they're working, they're working out, they're going to practice, they're they're going to class just to keep them moving for a day. Olympic right. swimmers, right. man, right. put that like, stuff down. It, it doesn't, it's not right. like you don't just do it on a normal, you know, person diet. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. that's what was shocking to me because that's all biology. I figured that to run a world-class athletic program, those are just the basic elements of <laughs> right. what you do to make it <laughs> exactly. succeed. It's like calories in, calories out. You know, I, and so to hear to hear a kid, especially in a world-class program like Connecticut. A world, well, a, world, a world-class program on a national stage, you know what I mean? Yes. After a championship game. Yeah, say know? that. So yeah, it's, and, but, I, but I was... But you know, it's we need kids like that to to speak up more because um, you'll you'll get you'll get what's going on on the inside, and because the NCAA they just pretty much do what they want until situations like this happen where it, where it comes to light and everyone's like whoa whoa whoa, and then it's like oh we we have to do something now we have to do something. One of the things that's always kind of ground my gears about the way college athletes get get traded is of course the revenue. The revenue generated mm. by players. Yep. You know, when I was going to, when I was at UVA, if you walked in the student bookstore to buy a football jersey, it had Thomas Jones' number on right. it. And it had Thomas right. Jones' number on it for a reason. <laughs> right. He was our star player. It yeah. wasn't just accidentally. Yeah, it wasn't like, year. oh, I felt <laughs> right. six right. seems yeah. like a good right. number. Right. <laughs> it sounds great. So, but he didn't right. see a dime of that revenue. Nope. D- meanwhile, you got kids, and I think this actually took place in the Northwestern too. You get a kid like uh, they had a former, they had a one-time quarterback uh, who was in their theater program, and he was denied the right to take a oh, theater at, at job. UVA. No, this is at oh, Northwestern. Okay. Oh, you can't. Yeah. Uh, which, right. Who? No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Jim. No, I thought you knew his name. I can't. Oh no, no. I came here without his name. But okay. But in theory, you could. There, there are a lot of kids. I was in the theater program at UVA too, and there are a lot of athletes in the program because they they understood that like getting better, being voice diction, yep. composure made them more interviewable and right. would be better for their career. So we trained a lot of people in acting. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they had. You know, auditioned for a for a professional theater job, like a lot, like all of us in the program were doing. Right. Um, they would not have been allowed to take it You're because an amateur. Right, because they were well. I mean, yes, because because they were they're permanently amateur in all things. Right. They couldn't trade on their name to exactly. do anything. Right. If they were a great oboe player, they couldn't we sign with an or, or orchestra. Well, and it's like and that. It's there crazy, was a kid man, too. Because who no one came else. Up with, at he was, there was a kid too a couple years ago who was in a design. He was in like a. Uh, interior, not a uh, like a clothing design program at his school, right? And he he won a contest, and he couldn't sell the shirts and stuff that he designed. Yeah, you know it's and it's it's remarkable that all of this money is being generated. These kids have talents. You say it's about the education, <laughs> yeah, but a kid who is good at his job or good at another or job. good at another job, yeah. Can't can't trade in that. I think it's nuts. But I do think the amount of money that's coming it's just in just like anti capitalist, right? But the amount of money that's coming into college sports now with the the major NCAA tournament TV money, the the billion dollars yeah. that was generated in one year off the college football playoff. Crazy. I think it is. We're reaching the point where there will be more Kane Coulters. Yeah. There will be more Shabazz Napiers. There will be, you know, we have right now on the University of Wisconsin uh, basketball team that went to the national championship game. One of their players is part of the the major antitrust lawsuit that could could totally upend 
the way college sports work right now. There, there are going to be more and more of these guys. And I think the important point about Northwestern is it's only it was only one front. Yeah. It was only yeah. one one place where guys were attacking right. the NCA. There are multiple others. There are <laughs> antitrust suits. There's going to continue to be efforts to change the way this happens. The NCA can sit here and issue statements like it did saying we're trying to make it better. Yeah, but they're right. they're only making it better because they're being forced. Exactly. And they're gonna continue like got these college athletes aren't dumb jocks. No, I know. They I know. they are not you know, they're not idiots. They can see all of this money right. coming in. Right. And yeah. eventually they're going to make the calculation that this is not a bargain. If someone at the National Labor Relations Board wants to come on my podcast and tell me <laughs> why they're not cowards, by all means, I give think, us a call. I think, ever, I think the courts, I think everyone is looking around and the, no one wants to be first. Right. I think there's a big game of you first going on right. that everyone's looking at each other and saying, look, we realize that this isn't right. We realize something needs to change. We don't want to be the ones to pull the plug. Right, we, right. we don't want to be the ones to, to turn the table over. Right. All right. Well, that's maybe the fairest way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> Travis is a fair guy. <laughs> Travis is a fair guy. All right, Travis, thank you very much. Uh, thank we you. will be right back. All right, we're back. It's me, Arthur Delaney, with Zach Carter and Paige Lavender. Hey. My, my Hi. friends on the HuffPost politics team. And we're going to talk about pets, especially dogs, but also cats, and a great uh, feature story that Zach published about the pet food industry, its many suspect claims of nutritional value, and its uh, lax regulation. By the government. It's a great story and a terrifying story for pet owners. <laughs> so, you're, so basically, I believe the story says your dog might die. <laughs> well, one of the things that's really sad about being a pet owner is that you actually do know that your dog will die. Uh, and, and oh, wait a minute. Isn't that one of the sad things about being a person, too? <laughs> it is. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it sucks. Just, just in general, there are problems like this in the universe. Uh, but pet I mean, with the caveat that most pet food is safe— uh, there have and that's some, a big caveat. Right. Uh, there have been some really catastrophic uh, pet food safety failures over the past decade or so. And the, the biggest one, uh, the most famous one, is in 2007 when thousands of pets um, are believed to have died uh, because of essentially poison that was put in it uh, for, for profit, basically. By uh, by ultimately, it turned out to be a, a couple of, uh, of of Chinese suppliers. The poison uh, was a, a way to they cut corner. They weren't like we're going to kill pets and then profit. <laughs> right, right. It was it was actually there was a chemical called melamine, which was designed to mimic the the reaction that they ha- that that ingredient testers that pet food testers have when they they actually test their food to have the same reaction that you would get for for protein. Uh. And so protein is one of the most expensive ingredients in in pet food. So if you can have this cheap chemical in there instead, then you as the supplier can be like, all right, you paid me for all this expensive protein, but here I sent you some melamine. And it turns out that melamine uh, can kill pets. And they, the Chinese suppliers just weren't up on their, their animal science on that. And so how has uh, regulation changed in the wake of the, the big pet food uh, disaster of 07. So that's the thing that's troubling for the industry right now is is not much. In 2010, Congress passed a law that said, uh, you know, we're, we're going to stop doing this whole recall game where we wait for all the pet food to be poisoned <laughs> and have it pulled from the shelves like they did in 2007 and start having a, a more proactive federal st- standard of regulation where you have to do certain things to keep your food uh, from ending up being uh, contaminated. And 
it's I, I think in general, uh, pet food safety advocates um, are pretty happy with the rule that they expect the FDA to fi- to write under that law. Um, the problem is that law was passed in 2010. Um, the deadline for that rule to pass was 2012. It still hasn't been implemented. Oh, typically, that pass. means they're having a comment period where pet food industry people are like, "Do this, do that." Right, and the pet food industry has lobbied against this really, really hard. And one of my one of my favorite sort of facts from the story is that in in one of the comment letters that um, that the Pet Food Institute, which is sort of the main lobbying body for all the biggest pet food companies, an institute, yeah, but it's basically like big kibble, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> they uh, they they said in their in their, their comment letter, look, uh, we don't need to do this very expensive and rigorous testing regime that the FDA has proposed because in two thousand seven, uh, you know, fifteen plus percent of our uh, of our pet food samples were uh, contaminated with salmonella, <laughs> and now it's only two point five percent. Yeah, and one of the fun things about numbers is that in you know in American politics, if you don't get to fifty one percent, like that's that's a low number. But in business, when the pet food industry is like a twenty two billion dollar year industry, you know a two point five percent market share, you know if it, if you just played out you know straight across all all types of and prices of food, that's like half a billion dollars of of salmonella tainted food potentially. Um, so that's a, that's a pretty significant portion of the market that is that is potentially unsafe. Um, and that's just that's in that that's the argument that the, that you know big kibble is making against further regulation because they use a small number right <laughs> so Paige Lavender you yes. recently adopted a dog how did you decide what to feed the dog and uh, what did you wind up going with that's a good question so our dog was actually with a foster before she came to live with my boyfriend and me and so we basically just fed her what the foster said but it did start out we you know we went to PetSmart with this girl who'd been taking care of our dog whose name is Pickle and will be referred to as that from here on out <laughs> um, so we went to PetSmart with this girl and she's like you know we've been buying her this expensive food but it's so expensive like you should probably wean her off this food onto like a cheaper brand and I didn't actually ask her why she went with the expensive food at first, but I imagine it's because, you know, like it says in your story, like you feel a little better when like, you know, it's, it's like the same when you're buying human food, like when it says like these ingredients are like all natural or whatever. And in general, expensive means better, right? Right. Well, that's what you think. That's the entire premise of (laughs) Donald Trump's existence. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So we ended up going with I'm's smart puppy, which is in like a big orange bag and I just, I like chatted Zach whenever the story first, you know, went to edit and I thought, oh my God, am I killing my dog? Like, I'm so scared to give her anything. Well, wait, wait, wait. Did you get the kind with arsenic or without? (laughs) (laughs) Now, how does, how does it, uh, different between the mainstream big bag of food like I am's and this expensive stuff that has proliferated, uh, in the last like couple decades? Well, so I, I mean, it depends on the bag of IMs you get, but there, there are some types of IMs that are, that are. Are considered pretty pricey. They're just more okay, well, how mainstream, is, but yeah. Is there a food safety difference between the the regular cheaper stuff and this fancier stuff with its health claims? So that that's the thing is that both health claims and the the pet safety uh, claims uh, they they tend to be pretty standard. And the the problems with 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 you know supply chain oversight. It's mostly about not what people say is in the food, but actually how they manage their supply chain. So a lot of these companies. You know, they're primarily marketing companies who are charging you more money for for pet food because it makes you feel good to say, "Oh, I got him the premium stuff that doesn't have you know nasty chicken byproducts in it." Um, 
there's there's just not a whole lot of evidence that that chicken byproducts are any. There actually is no evidence that byproducts are any better or worse for your dogs than just something that says chicken. Um, but they sound gross. It's like chicken feed and chicken intestines. It's stuff that you and I don't want to eat. Um, but but these companies, you know, they don't. A lot of them don't make it in their own factories. It gets made in you know a supplier's factory who gets parts from suppliers all over the world, uh, who themselves gets gets you know stuff from a, a second and third party. I, I kind of. When I talk to people about it now, I think about so Pepper is my dog, right? And and she gets sometimes when she's been like really good, I'll go to like the the cheap fifty percent aisle of the Safeway and get the meat that's about to expire, like uh, uh, you know whatever beef for stew or something. It's the cheapest stuff there. It's going bad in a day, and you know I'll cook some of that up for her, uh, and and add it to her food like over the course of the week, and she like you know gets really excited about dinner time. Um, that costs like. Three fifty a pound when that happens. Even the fancy pants stuff, like Blue Buffalo is one of the fancy pants brands we name in the in in the story. That's still about a dollar fifty a pound. So it's a lot less than getting meat that's about to expire. <laughs> the point is that the, the ingredients that go into pet food are really cheap, and people should get pet foods that seem to work for their dogs. You know, if if you like your if you like what way your dog seems to be behaving, and your vet says the food is is good for them, then that, you know that's probably good. And if you don't like it. Then you should think about changing it. But you're not just because the the marketing bag, the marketing on the bag says you know all natural and organic or made with fresh fruits and veggies doesn't necessarily mean anything for your dog's you know health. I've been buying my dog George Dog Einstein brand food, and he hasn't come up with anything. He seems dog he's Einstein. Happy. A dumb animal. <laughs> People, I mean, I, I started, that's not a real brand. I made that up. Uh, <laughs> I was like, do oh, I need to like look at all? No, he eats items. He eats the brown chunks. Brown it's chunks, disgusting. <laughs> it's dog food. It's yeah. dog food. And if you if you want to feed your dog food that's not you know cheap sort of leftover crap from other types of supplies, then then don't feed them dog food. You know, um, and otherwise feed them dog food. I have a baby who crawls around. He'll put a, a seashell or a worm in his mouth, <laughs> and he goes to the dog bowl, and he won't even put that in his mouth. Aww. <laughs> anyway, maybe because he knows it belongs to the dog, and he's not trying to steal from other people. He's just not thieving well, he, at If a young he knew age. that, he wouldn't have gone that far. <laughs> well, who's true. he stealing the worms from? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> All right, thank you so much, Zach. Thanks, guys. And Paige. Thanks. Hey, we're back once again. Dante Stallworth remains with us hey, hey. throughout. And now we're joined by our good friend, Arthur Delaney. Arthur. Thank you for including yes. me. God, look at that smile. Look at that smile. <laughs> the bright, if people, you could only see Arthur's bright, shiny smile right now. If you'd want to follow <laughs> You'd want to follow him on Twitter. At right. Arthur Delaney HP. Please right. follow me or I'll be sad. Right. Please follow him. <laughs> He's a good follow. Yes, we have like a lot of we're we're willing to endorse people following you. Um okay, so we wanna talk about twenty sixteen again. Arthur, what do you want to talk about? Well, if it's the topic is twenty sixteen, yeah. the topic is yeah. Trump. <laughs> Really? And I and I and I just want to say why I think he's okay. ahead at this point. Okay, why don't and you And also yeah. after that I want to explain why it doesn't matter. It okay. doesn't matter. Cuz our our politics has been dominated by people who are megalomaniacs. And along comes the most uninhibited megalomaniacal guy ever. And so just it's inevitable that this would happen and he would be winning during this this weakest part 
of the primary process. And uh, it, it will be fleeting, though. I'm intrigued. I'll, I'm intrigued by this. This week, um, uh, former Obama speechwriter John Lovett wrote a piece for, I want to say the Daily Beast, but I'm probably wrong, um, that that uh, that sort of like imagined the a post-Trump presidency. And one of the themes that emerges in this, in this thing is that in his like fictional account of what happens at the end of Trump's presidency is that we all as a country come to realize that our leaders had been kind of trending in the megalomaniacal egomaniac direction and it was what we deserved and we issued a course correction it's so true like ted cruz guy fieri i just gave away the ending (laughs) president guy fieri guy fieri is actually a logical next step totally totally (laughs) so that's good so you think you think that uh you think that everyone needs like a susan of egomania to run for president but i don't think they need it but that's who we are who we've been getting and who we've been promoting over the past many years well it's it's funny you say that jace because a a friend of mine uh who writes for the uh, nfl albert breer uh this was uh, i don't know a month ago when one of the early polls came out and trump was leading by a wide margin and he said because he's he was obviously covering a lot of the Brady stuff, so he was extremely busy and couldn't really keep up with what you know the yeah. stuff. So um, he said he tweeted me back and he said, "That's exactly who we deserve. <laughs> if this is, I mean, if this is where this is going, this is this is probably who we deserve. I mean, you know, but uh, a post-Trump presidency, I, I would like to believe that. Uh, uh, are we even going to be here? Do you not, yeah? Do you not just automatically envision I mean, a smoldering wasteland? Are we even going to be here? Uh, yeah, nuclear I, fallout. Like, no. It's, if if Trump gets elected, I know I put myself on the market. I'm like, come on, come at me, country. You're speaking of me. football. There's bid on me. Who wants me? The and president has a football, and that's the word they use for the the briefcase with nuclear codes in it, right? Yeah. No been, doubt he would he would like let's fire that up. Yeah. There's a God. somebody's bothering me. <laughs> There's good. But, you're a loser. So yeah. <laughs> but can we get back to one of my theories? One of my theories about Trump and 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 this is this is one of the reasons that because I I hold this belief so deeply, it's one of the reasons that even as the world kind of insists that we engage with Trump as a credible candidate, I just can't. Um and it's that for my belief is that for Donald Trump, winning the presidency is actually the worst case scenario. Like the guy has gotten rich and successful and famous by pursuing uh, pursuing uh, his career is based on sort of like the pursuit of maximum return on minimum responsibility. Yes. So there's no responsible, no no amount of responsibility that I think matches what it means to be president of the United States. He doesn't want it. He knows he's not going to get it. And here's why everyone else should should get a clue right now. Yeah. And people are pooping on the Huffington Post cuz oh, you cover it as entertainment. I love that by the why way. Why do you why do you deny your readers the this important news? We're not denying Trump them. is the front runner. What's he got? 25%. You you're going to win with 25%? No, you're no. not. You're not. It's not enough points. I think you a lot. Need more. I think a lot of people sort of imagine that that twenty five percent. Now, the the argument that you'd say is that well, everyone else has only got twelve percent. How do they win? It? Add them all up, and it's more <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when, how they how they it's win? Like, <laughs> how they win? I think a lot of people don't understand that there's not going to be seventeen candidates in January. Right. Yeah, take right. all the right. take all their little one percent. <laughs> 
point whatever and add it up, and it's more than what Donald right. Trump has. Right, and this is just math. Rick Perry's <laughs> easy math. <laughs> there's going to be a sizable portion of Rick Perry supporters, whoever they are, that are not going to go to Trump. And go on up the line. Who would Donald Trump's running mate be? Can we just hypothetically answer that? Oh, God, it's oh like, he, he was asked I know by he said CNN Oprah. or somebody. He, I know he mentioned Oprah, but I was <laughs> thinking more. He mentioned Oprah. He what? said he Why? said Oprah would make a great vice president. No, no, no. He's, uh, well, now that he's deeper in the, in the weeds. No, no, no. He's He was mentioning some of the other guys who he's running against, and I think Ted Cruz Oh, that might be have awesome. been one of them. So he's like, that'd be awesome. He he might have said Oprah before, but now that he's got to pretend right, a little, right, you know, right, he's a little right, farther right, along. Right, so right. his pretending has to get next <laughs> right. level. He said stuff like right. that. Carl Icahn would be a member of his cabinet, and I was like, so you're really trying to win over forty percent of the on-air talent at CNBC with that? Great. I mean, do you know anyone who people actually know? You know, <laughs> he'd, our, he'd bring in a lot of doddering 80 year old outsiders. capitalist weirdos it's just kind of strange to me um <laughs> the donald but this is why this is why i can't really engage with it is because is because i don't think he actually wants to be president and one of the you're ta- right well you're right it's the worst it's for him it's a it's it is a worst case scenario. Yeah. it would it's, suck it's like a hard job right and that and, but there's nothing there's nothing that he stands to lose from losing a presidential election or from, from not, you know, anything that he's doing in this election is only right. going to help him and his ego. He, and that's, it's, it's, a, it's a win-win situation for him. Right. He, he got two magazine covers this week. I, <laughs> I think he got Time Magazine right. and uh, Entertainment Weekly. I don't want to miss say the wrong. No, anyway, th- Entertainment that, Weekly. Yeah, that's what he wants. I think, it's, I think it's kind of funny that people, to just get back to what you were saying, that people were so upset when we, when we moved like <laughs> just like Trump statements to entertainment. Like we've been covering like his his effect on the politics and politics, but we just put his statements in entertainment. And what I find so funny about this is like with with a few exceptions, like most media critics and a bunch of people who work at other news organizations were like wounded by the fact we did that. They said, you can't decide how you cover him. And I was like, we actually can <laughs> It's actually our job. And if it's weird to you, I have good news. You don't work for the Huffington Post, <laughs> and we'll prob- you'll probably never work for us. So if you're hung up about what, how it's going to affect your job, don't worry about it. Cover him however you like. Our people Tell- just want to pick on us because we're winners. Right. <laughs> I actually, one of the things. Just like Trump. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. One of the things I like about it is that I, my, uh, I, think, I think of Donald Trump as a classic example of what Daniel Borston called a pseudo-event, which is a synthetic bit of news that ends up gaining salience and relevance because we, as people who are in the news business, need to present stories, and not just stories, but stories that kind of like – uh, achieve a certain amount of expectations. Like every day we go to work and we have to like break a big story. There has to be something novel and exciting to show people on a daily basis. And Trump comes and sit, fits the bill for us. You know, it fits the bill for everybody. He's extremely novel and he's exciting and he's larger than life. And so we can just put him to work. And it's like a lot of people are just like, this is awesome. It's August. And we can talk about this in 2016. Normally you'd be talking about what? Some bullshit. Some like, so like <laughs> oh, some some dude joined a campaign. Some fucking strategist you never heard of. He's working with Ruby 
video now, some donor you never heard of right. thinks he might back somebody. All that invisible primary bullshit that's so hard to sell. You know, instead we got Trump telling people that Mexicans are rapists. It's amazing. You know, it's but it's a classic pseudo event. Um, but the move that Ryan has has asked us to make, which is to like consider Trump simultaneously as an entertainment phenomenon and a political phenomenon, I think it forces us to confront the pseudo-event nature of right, Donald Trump's yep. candidacy on a daily basis. And it also uh, forces us to try to think unconventionally about how to cover him. You know, you've been talking about how he's like Biff on Back to the Future. Yes. Right? That story doesn't come out. We don't write that story if we're not thinking unconventionally. And my only disappointment is that we should we should think of other ways to do stuff like this, shake stuff up, and be unconventional the way we cover politics. Well, if the listeners have any suggestions, we've got Back to the Future, we have White Men Can't Jump, and I'm yes, looking, that was really looking good. for a third movie that helps explain the Trump phenomenon. So yeah, people, I... I hit that, me on Twitter. Yeah, I, I, if, if, you know, I, I would say that, like, if you're, if you're a reader or a listener and you're worried about the decision we've made, I, like, I want to sympathize with you and understand it with you, but join us. <laughs> like, take a, take a dip, dip into the center of the pool with us and, like, see what we can make together. Call us up, say, you know, share, a, share your unconventional thoughts about Trump and your unconventional thoughts about politics, you know, and it'll just help us be better. You know, I think that we're, like, I, I think it's helped us think a lot more interesting thoughts about what's going on in the world by maybe, being maybe Forrest constantly Trump. To confront this. <laughs> Forrest Trump. Forrest Trump. <laughs> now we're just spitballing. But this, I mean, <laughs> well, anyway. this is how a lot of like, like nonsense gets made. We think of a frame and then we like start working on how to jam it in the frame. That's how a lot of comedy gets made. All right. Well, um, <laughs> I guess we'll be back next week talking about Donald Trump. Yeah. Right. Donald. Maybe. Maybe make America great again. Do you you know that's, that's Rick great, Perry's that's Rick Perry's Super PAC's name? How? Do, well, that's what? A, what? Yeah, that's that was Rick Perry's 2012 Super PAC name. Make America great again. Wow, what are the odds? Two two different it's, people would think of that in politics. I know. <laughs> <laughs> make America what? 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 Neat. Make, <laughs> clean America's. Make America's bed again. But leave the infrastructure and the education. Don't touch that. Yeah. Let, let that. <laughs> let that fall into decrepitude. <laughs> let that fall apart. Okay, I've dragged this segment out way longer than it needed to be. Let's deport ourselves. Yes, we're going to deport. We're going to self-deport right now. Um, Dante, what is your Twitter handle? It because is at Dante Stallworth. Oh, that's pretty. That's, that's nice and easy. That is really easy. Yeah, but he, he has enough followers already. D o n t e. There you go. Stall uh, like a stall, yep. and then worth worth like know your value, know your worth. There you go. <laughs> So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced and edited by Adriana Ucero with technical direction from Brad Shannon and assistance from Christine Canetta. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by former National Football League wide receiver Dante Stallworth, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Paige Lavender, Travis Waldron, and Allie Watkins. So That Happened is sponsored by Casper Mattresses. Go to casper.com slash happened to see what Casper can do for your nights of sleep. So That Happened is available on iTunes. Check us out on the iTunes store for the Huffington Post whole family of podcasts. Subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send us an email to so that happened at huffingtonpost.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. We miss you already.
when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.